0: Hello again everyone, great to see you all. Uh, I made the mistake a couple of weeks ago when I started this uh, series on Hebrews of making a throwaway line that Hebrews is no one's favorite book and uh, it's wonderful that over the last few weeks, several people after studying it in gospel teams and here at church have said, you know, I think Hebrews is my favorite book to me. Even Victoria said, gee, you were stupid saying that a couple of weeks ago. I think Hebrews is my favorite book. So there you go. Uh, it is wonderful. And we're getting in, starting to get into the real meat of the book, if I can put it that way today. So let's pray as we look at it. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we pray that we would not be like those people long ago who heard your voice Yet hardened their hearts. Instead, as we hear your voice in your word this morning, uh, we pray that we would have soft hearts ready to respond to it in faith and repentance and ready to put it into practice in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember once uh, going to the art gallery to see a uh, special Monet exhibition, and uh, it was great. There were these amazing paintings they brought from all these great galleries all over Europe and it was all incredible but after we'd looked at that exhibition I thought oh I don't go to the art gallery very often let's wander around the Australian artists collection. Now I don't like to sound un-Australian at this point or, or sound like a snob but uh, it all just seemed a bit ordinary and then I realised my problem was I'd done it in the wrong order. I should have gone to see them first and they would have been amazing but then go on to see the master. You see, the problem was I was comparing them to the master I'd already seen. Uh, it's like that for me with watching soccer in Australia, I find, I'm sure I'm going to uh, offend some people here. My problem is the only soccer I've ever watched, I grew up in rugby league, the only soccer I've ever watched is like the Premier League or the, the World Cup. And so a friend says, hey, let's go and see, you know, Central Coast Mariners play Adelaide United. And I go and it's so boring and it's slow. And that's the problem. I've seen the best first And so I then compare it to that. Uh, And that's the point we've been seeing in these opening chapters of Hebrews. Jesus is the masterpiece. And when you have a a clear and true picture of Jesus, even other good things, like the Old Testament law, even good things fade in comparison to Jesus. And so the argument has been in these first couple of chapters, the words of the prophets are good and wonderful, but the word of the Son of God is best. You know, the the Old Testament law given by the angels is good and wonderful, but the word of salvation brought by the Son is best. And we continue that theme today in chapter three and with another comparison, because before the coming of Jesus, there is one man who towered over history. And he's considered greater than all the others in the Old Testament, and that is Moses. Moses is the greatest figure Uh, And it was through Moses that God saved his people. It was through Moses that God actually created his people. And so chapter three continues this theme we've been seeing of Jesus is better than, and this time it's better than Moses. But as I start, I just want to make a little point. This can all just sound of academic interest to us, I think. And that's one of the struggles with Hebrews is is this is not our problem. We we don't idolise Moses, you know, to compare Jesus. We we already know Jesus first, if you like. And so we sort of think that's great, but I already know Jesus is the best. That's why I'm a Christian. But What we're going to see in this passage is what this means for us in a very, very practical sense. Uh, we're now really getting to the part of this book of Hebrews that shows us what it means for us that Jesus is better. So I want you to keep that in mind. But let's get into it. So the first thing we're looking at is Jesus greater than Moses and this is verses one to six and so uh, please have your Bibles open because it is quite uh, an argument he makes so have it if you need a Bible put up your hand David will get you one so look with me at verse one it says therefore holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession now straight away he's setting out for us how wonderful it is to be a Christian Jesus is the apostle, that is, the one sent by God. Before anyone else is an apostle of Jesus, Jesus is an apostle of his father. Jesus is our high priest. He's the one who opens up the way to God. We are Jesus's holy brothers and sisters. This one verse is just jam packed. We have been set apart by God and and included in his family. And, And together it says, we have a heavenly calling. God has called us to have a place in his kingdom. That's what you have if you are a Christian. And so he says, whatever you do, consider Jesus. This is so important. And if you get nothing else actually from our whole series on Hebrews, get this, fix your eyes on Jesus. It's like the song we sing all the time says, consider Christ the source of our salvation. When people are struggling in their faith, they often look inwards. They look in at their hearts and, and, and think, what's my issue? Or they look to other Christian leaders, or they look to the church. But other Christians are, are, are sinners like us. Uh, they'll sometimes let us down. So no, fix your eyes on Jesus consider Jesus. And why? Well, that's where this comparison with Moses comes in. See, for people from a Jewish background, who would you fix your eyes on? Who would you look to as your great example? You would look to Moses. You'd even call him your savior in many ways. So look with me. In verse two, it says that Jesus is faithful to God, just like Moses was faithful in God's household. So for Moses, God's household was the Old Testament people of God. That's Israel. Moses faithfully served God by serving God's people. So the point is, both Moses and Jesus are faithful to God. But then it says, Jesus is worthy of more glory. Why? Look at verse three. It says, for Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. See, the point is making is Moses served the people of God, but he was part of the people of God. Jesus creates the people of God. When you see a great building, do you give the glory to the bricks or do you give the glory to the architect and to the builder? Or perhaps a better analogy, when you see a great painting, do you give the glory to the guy who hung it straight on the wall and put the lights on it so you could see it clearly that's pretty important but no you give the glory to the painter to the one who created it see as wonderful as Moses was he is the greatest man in the old testament he was look at verse 5 a servant in God's house but Jesus verse 6 Christ was faithful as a son over his household Moses great servant Jesus is the son it's his household. So that's why Jesus is greater even than Moses. Now, as I say, oh, that's very interesting. It was very relevant to them because they were in danger of giving up on Jesus and going back to Moses and following the law that had come through Moses. They were in danger of going back to Old Testament religion. But I don't think that's our danger. I'd never meet anyone who who that is the danger for. So this can seem only of academic interest to us. We say, of course, Jesus is greater than most. We even sing it in all our kids' songs. Jesus is the best. Jesus is the boss. They're all themes. They're all on that one theme, nearly all of them. But that leads us to the very practical second part of our passage. So come with me. Second heading, make sure you keep listening to Jesus. This is verses 6 to 19. So he's just been talking about being a part of God's household, being a part of God's family, which you are if you trust in Jesus. Praise God. You are God's child if you trust in Jesus. But look at the second part of verse 6. He says, and we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. He's saying to these people, it's wonderful that you believe in Jesus now, praise God, but what matters is that you persevere in that faith, that you hold on to that confidence in Christ. You see, when Christ returns, he won't ask, did you once tick a box on a feedback slip saying, yes, I'm a Christian. He won't ask, did you ever go to church? Did you ever express faith in me? He'll ask, have I found you trusting in me now? Have you kept trusting me to the end? And that's where all that stuff about Moses now becomes really important because many of the Old Testament people of God the people who were saved out of Egypt by their saviour Moses they didn't keep listening to Moses and so they missed out come with me to verse 7 it says therefore as the Holy Spirit says and then he quotes Psalm 95 which was our first reading today today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me tried me and saw my works for 40 years therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest what's that talking about well as I say it's quoting Psalm 95 from the Old Testament, but Psalm 95 was looking back to the events that happened in Exodus 17 and Numbers 14 and Numbers 20, amongst other places. You might want to go and look up those stories and read them in your gospel teams during the week. God had brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, this incredible act of salvation, but then they grumbled about it. They said, we'd rather be back as slaves in Egypt. So God then sent them manna from heaven, the bread of heaven, food that Tasted like honey, and they didn't even have to work for it. It was just there to pick up each morning and, and eat, but still they grumbled, and so so he sent them quails to eat, surely the fattest, easiest little bird there is, you know, just sitting there waiting for them to pick up every morning outside their tent. Still they grumbled. Then they turned on Moses, they said, We don't have enough water. They threatened to stone Moses and put him to death, and again God provided, but still they grumbled and complained. And when they got right to the edge of the promised land, land And God said, There it is, go in and take it. This place that is overabundant in fruitfulness, go and take it. I'm giving it to you. They got scared and refused to do it, they would not believe God. And what made it worse was that these people should have known better. This was the generation who had seen all of God's incredible miracles. They had seen the parting of the Red Sea. They, they had seen God go before them in a cloud by day and, and in a pillar of fire by night. They had seen God provide food for them every day in miraculous ways. Yet despite all of that, they hardened their hearts to God's word. They kept testing God. They kept trying God. And God judged them for it. That generation died in the desert. They never got to enter what the Bible calls God's rest. That is the promised land, the place where they could live with God, experience his blessings and experience rest from all their enemies and all their struggles. And what was their sin? Grumbling and complaining. Yes. Be very, very wary. God hates grumbling. God hates grumbling. But at its heart, Their sin was hardening their hearts to God and hardening their hearts to his word. They refused to keep believing God. Look at what it says down at verse 19. It says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Their sin was they stopped believing and trusting God and his word. And if that was the result for people who turned away from the word of God that came through the servant of God's people, Moses, how much more will it be the case for the word of God that has come through the one who created God's people? How much more will it be the case for the word of God that has come through the son of God? And so this is where the rubber hits the road in the book of Hebrews, with a warning to us that is, I think, one of the most powerful in all of scripture. Look at me at verse 12. It says, watch out brothers and sisters so that there won't be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. Watch out that your heart does not depart from what you have come to know. More importantly from who you have come to know. Watch out that you don't end up one of those people who used to to believe in Jesus. We struggle with the strength of the language here a bit, don't we? We struggle with the word evil, the idea that an unbelieving heart is evil, but to walk away from the living God who sent his son to die for you, that is not just an intellectual decision. It's a moral decision to say, I have heard what the son of God has done for me, but I don't want it. I'll go my own way. That is an offence against God. Salvation, a place in God's great eternal rest, heaven, the kingdom of God, is only for those who persevere to the end. He stresses the key point again at verse 14. Look there. He says, For we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. Saving faith perseveres to the end. I have never run a marathon, and you don't need to be a prophet to know that I probably never will run a marathon, but I know you do not get a prize for running the first 10 kilometers. You don't get anything for running the first 10 kilometers. Even if you're the fastest over the first 10, you do not get anything. It doesn't matter whether you started the race, it matters that you finish the race. Look at it again, verse 14. For we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end The reality we had at the start. Now there are other parts of scripture that talk about how we persevere by God's strength, that talk about God's great electing work in choosing those for salvation, how how God is at work in us by his spirit. Praise God. But do you notice the writer of the Hebrews doesn't bring that up at this point because he wants you to hear this warning loud and clear. The warning is real to us and it is about our responsibility. And so what is Hebrews calling us to do, to persevere to the end? Well, there are three things we're encouraged to do here. So come with me, three things. The first is, watch yourself closely for warning signs. Look at verse 12 again. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. Watch out for the warning signs in yourself and those you love. Watch out, in the context of Psalm 95, watch out for a grumbling, complaining spirit that is not thankful to God. Watch out that you don't start to talk and act and think like the world around you. Watch out that you don't slip out of godly habits in terms of prayer and Bible reading and church. Be alert is the first encouragement. But then there are two key things that this chapter tells us we need for Christian perseverance and they are not new. So the second is keep the right attitude to God's word. What is the line that gets repeated again and again in this chapter? Scan back through the chapter and then if you want flick over the page and go to chapter four that we're going to see next week and see what the line that gets repeated again and again is. It is from Psalm 95 and it is today if you hear his voice. Today, if you hear his voice, God speaks to us by his word and is that word that we need to keep listening to every day to persevere. That means we need to make sure we are hearing God speak all the time. In our Bible reading, at church, in our gospel teams. But here the focus is more on what we do when we hear it. Here the focus is on how we listen to it. Do we have the right attitude to God's word? Do we come with ears open, hanging on every word, wondering, what do I have to do today in response to what God is saying? This is God speaking to me. What must I do in response? Do we come with humility, ready to listen, ready to change our minds, ready to change our attitudes, ready to change our actions to fit with it? Or do we come with agendas? When God's word challenges us, do we grumble and complain and want to argue with it and rationalize ourselves out of it? Do we search for ways to make it fit with what I think rather than change what I think to fit with it? See, when we say, I don't like what the Bible says on something, we're actually saying, I don't like what God says on something. And that is a very dangerous place to be. I think the longer you are a Christian though, the real danger is we actually just become ho-hum about God's word. We just become ho-hum. We think, I know it pretty well already, or at least I know the Reader's Digest version. You know, I know the main points. And so as we open God's word, we don't expect that God is speaking to us. Or as we come to church, we don't come with a sense of reverence that God is speaking to us. We stop hanging on it. We forget, this is God speaking to me today. And so we need to respond with faith and humility and readiness to change today. Watch out if you find yourself heading in that direction. Remind yourself every time you open God's word, every time you meet with your brothers and sisters in Christ and hear it read, this is God speaking to me today. Thirdly, or the second thing is fellowship. Prioritise fellowship. Because that is the other key to Christian perseverance. And that's the big point of actually this chapter. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you, that's you, plural. Watch out, brothers, that there won't be in any of you's, if you like, to use modern Australian, an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God, but encourage each other daily, while it is still called today, So that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. We need each other if we are going to persevere in the faith. When we remove ourselves from fellowship, I don't care how much we read the Bible and pray ourselves or listen to online sermons, though in my experience, the sort of person who removes themselves from fellowship doesn't do that either. But when we remove ourselves from fellowship, the world dominates our heart and mind as it says there in verse 13, we get hardened by sin's deception. The dominant voices in our ears, subtly and not so subtly, lead us away from God. And we start to think, is God's word really good and right? Did God really say that? We start to tolerate sin in our heart, first of all, and then in our lives our language changes, our attitudes change, and over time, we end up with an unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. Gathering weekly, at least here on Sunday, in our gospel teams, the smaller incidental encouragements of catching up with brothers and sisters in Christ is essential for persevering in the faith. Because the very act of meeting together reminds us I am a part of the people of God, not the world. And it's only when we meet in person that we can truly be encouraged and sometimes challenged where we need to be. I'm not just talking about through the sermon or a study. It's also our personal interactions that are the key. The reason fellowship is so important is that we rub up against each other, if you'll excuse that expression is that we're in contact with one another, we see one another, and so we can be encouraged and be challenged and and be rebuked sometimes when we need to be. Somehow, many modern Christians stopped getting this. I think for many modern Christians, church has become something they fit in around other priorities. Fellowship has become something they fit in around other priorities. That is a dangerous place to be. Meeting with God's people should be the immovable pole in our calendar because it is that important for our faith, but also it's the way we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ and help them to persevere in their faith. Verse 13 says we need it daily. If I can take the chance to speak about online church uh, out of COVID, you'll notice we actually never called it online church because it's not church if you're online. It's listening to a sermon. It's listening to people sing. It's not church. And at the moment, we're keeping it going for people who have COVID or people who have serious health issues. We need to remember it does not achieve what Hebrews 3 is telling us we need. It is very much second best. So I want to encourage people, don't unnecessarily use that option. It doesn't achieve what Hebrews 3 is talking about. Hebrews 3 is talking about sharing our lives, and it is sharing our lives with our brothers and sisters in Christ that stops us being hardened by sin's deception. As we close, look again with me at verse 6. It says, But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. So I'm going to pray that we might do just that. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful picture of Jesus we have in the scriptures. We thank you that we have come to know that he is your son, the radiance of your glory. We praise you that we have come to know that he gave himself to die for our sins and rose again so that we might have the gift of eternal life. Father, we thank you that you have made us your children and included us in your household through faith in Christ. So, Father, help us to hold on to that courage and that confidence of our hope. We pray that we would sit humbly under your word daily, listening to you speak. And we pray that we would prioritize fellowship, sharing our lives with our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can encourage each other to persevere. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.